no matter um, how amazing you think you are, and this is not to be discouraging, um, gotta be honest with you, the, the game don't need you. Let me be honest with you. Science, medicine, they were here before you were here. Science, medicine, they're gonna be here after you're gone. You know, your legacy, your love, your relationships, those are things that can cross generations, you know? Um, so you can't get lost in it. And um, I think that being older at this point and still being, um, I'm not gonna call it school, still being um, at this training phase of my career, you know, I think if nothing else, I have perspective, a perspective that when I walk into a classroom or when I walk into a test, like, you know, regardless of what happens on this exam, my mom's still gonna love me. Please believe it. It's gonna change that. You know, like, I'm still gonna go home to my wife. Like, it's not gonna change that. You know, so you gotta, you gotta, like, tame the beast, right? So, like, anybody who I'm talking to about taking uh, an entrance exam for whatever, just like with the big dog, if you act like you're scared of it, you know, it's gonna sense that fear. It's gonna, it's gonna tear you up, you know, but if you if you show dominance to that big dog it's gonna it's gonna bow down to you and you have to treat exams or whatever challenge that you're dealing with just like that like i'm not afraid of you welcome to for the culture podcast where we and our guests discuss our lived experiences in science this podcast explores how our work and mere presence impact our culture today this podcast is an unfiltered conversation and really more of a therapy session where we can vent and um, hopefully the audience can benefit from our experiences. This podcast provides a platform for young educated black men to discuss their development as individuals, scientists, and community leaders in order to help and improve our culture. Welcome, welcome back to For The Culture Podcast. This is your boy ENS and I'm here with my co-host, Kofi K and Lawrence M. Uh, today is a very, very, very special edition of For the Culture podcast. We have one of our favorites, uh, one of my favorite mentors, Dr. Patrick P. Carrier, straight out of Louisiana, Baton Rouge to be exact. Um, standing at five. What's, what height do you want to be? <laughs> you doing this? Okay. <laughs> the starting shooting guard on the team, uh, one of our good fellows, uh, just an outstanding human being, outstanding brother. Uh, we are pleased to have you on the show today, um, and thank you for being here. Uh, so again, we're here with our one of our favorites, Dr. P. Carrier, uh, PZ. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other cool sidekick names. <laughs> um, but man, it is a pleasure to have you here, man. Um, if you could briefly just introduce yourself, uh, tell us where you're from, uh, a little bit about yourself before we get into the rest of the show. Yeah, uh, well, thank you for that. And thank you guys for having me. Obviously, uh, uh, what an honor it is to kind of chop it up with my boys about some stuff that hopefully um, could help someone else. So a um, little bit about me. You, you said a lot there, which pretty much sums it up. But Patrick Carrier um, grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, had a lot to do with who I am today. So definitely proud about that. Went to LSU for undergrad. After that, spent some time working as a research assistant um, in New Orleans at Xavier University. Um, and then after that, went to get my PhD at Morehouse School of Medicine, where I met you fine gentlemen. Um, and then it was during that time that, you know, I made that move to, to apply to medical school and ended up going to Wake Forest School of Medicine. That's where I am now. I'm a current fourth year medical student and I'm ready to get, get done with this school thing, man, to be honest. I'm a journeyman. I'm a journeyman. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So um, a question that we tend to ask most of our guests is what got you into STEM? What was that moment that you know was for you? And what is your overall goal for STEM? Or do you have an overall goal for STEM? And how do you exude STEMness in your life? <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, well, I think the story for me starts with um, the fact that I actually really didn't like science, engineering, technology, or math. Um, when I was in middle school, um, I definitely uh, foolhardily believed that I was going to be an NBA basketball player. And um, you really couldn't tell me nothing else. Um, and I remember 
my mom having a brokering broker me, you know, to make sure, you know, I would read before I went to basketball practice. And I was like, I don't know who needs reading, you know, I need basketball. So, you know, that was my thing for a while. And honestly, you know, a lot of the stuff we were learning in class back then um, wasn't that interesting to me. So it wasn't until, um, you know, my mom got some advice uh, from some of her friends, you know, to make sure to not allow me to not be productive during my summer times. Right. Um, so my mom enrolled me for a summer program that um, emphasized uh, STEM fields, gave us exposure to it, um, taught us how to be proficient in exploring the different, you know, career options. Um, and I thought that was fascinating. Um, number one, because you would think a program like this attracted a whole bunch of squares, but it was actually, you know, a bunch of people who had similar goals. Um, it felt cool to be smart in that environment. And I thought that was really important for me and the guys that I hung around to um, immerse ourselves in at that point, because it, it gave us more of a vision that we could be ourselves and continue along this path. Um, so that, that was probably the most crucial point. Um, also in high school, um, my grandfather got prostate cancer and that was pretty impactful for me. At that point, I didn't really understand, you know, how cancer worked or anything like that. But, you know, wanting to kind of alleviate that situation in some type of way made me want to learn more about it. Um, so I think that, along with my experiences in those in those summer programs, kind of shaped the dream of me wanting to be in some way, shape or form in, in science and medicine. Um, it was, I believe, when I got to college at LSU, um, I was in a research scholarship program, which was amazing, had a chance to kind of do research through that. But that was my first time in that program that I was able to meet um, someone who had both an MD and a PhD. I knew this was something that could happen, but I hadn't necessarily met someone who did it. And this was my freshman year. I remember he talked about his path and how he actually didn't do a combined degree program. He did his PhD first and then he did his MD. So I was like, okay, interesting. I didn't know you could do it like that, but most likely I'm going to do a combined degree program. That's just how I see it going. Um, and I ended up doing research with that guy, spent a whole year uh, working on research with him and learning more from his experience. So I think that was influential. And I think you guys have talked in previous shows about having mentors to kind of along, along each step or each phase of your path, kind of showing you the way. So I felt like he showed me the way in that moment in time, but the way college went, you know, I really ended it not really sure, uh, you know, which path I was going to take. I didn't feel like I was competitive and competitive enough to go for a combined degree program at that point, I didn't know whether I wanted to do graduate school first, medical school first, um, and I was lost for a second. But ultimately, I had a friend uh, who was working at Xavier, and she was getting ready to go to medical school, but the position that she had was opening up. So she called me. She said, hey, this might be a perfect opportunity for you. And uh, the rest is history, man. So I think working at Xavier was supremely important because uh, I was able to work with mentors who put their faith in me, put their trust in me and kind of helped me to elevate, you know, myself to certain levels of thinking and, um, you know, responsibilities with regard to teaching students or helping to write grants um, that helped me build a framework to be ready for graduate school. So that's when I went to get my PhD at Morehouse School of Medicine. Um, that was an experience in itself, man. I felt like I learned so many things about myself and the world um, through that experience. Um, and yeah, so I think um, the story of my, myself in STEM is really having people give me the exposure that I need to understand where I could use my, my strong skill sets um, and be helpful in this space. And then having mentors along the way to kind of outline what exactly that looks like. Uh, so I'm, I'm thankful to them. And my goals in STEM, <clears throat> you know, I think number one is to be really good at my job. I think that's where, you know, we all just want to be good at what we do. But within that, you know, I want to still be um, an example for the next generation. And I think that's why you have to 
actively seek out opportunities um, to reach back, you know, and lift as we climb. Um, so that's why, you know, I'm happy for initiatives like this podcast or being able to do like what we did in graduate school, go out to schools and, and talk to young men um, and just, you know, start to develop their thinking even at that age, um, you know, what it's gonna take and make sure they have a plan and make sure they know the specifics. Um, because unless you do, all of this is gonna be, you know, way too complicated to deal with. So um, that that's my goal. Yes, sir. Thank you for that, man. Thank you for that. Um, I remember in a lot of our talks uh, going through the grad school experience, um, we kind of talked about the nature versus nurture avenue. But most often we would have a conversation about uh, destroying the stereotype that you have to be the smartest cookie in the box um, in order to get to some of the places that we have. Um, you being on both sides of the table, being a PhD and finishing up your MD now, um, how does that how does that kind of uh, vibe with you? Or do you still have that same mentality? And how would you teach that to some of the mentees that you have? I know you had that conversation with me as one of your mentees, but how would you want that message to be put out to the public or to others who may be listening to this podcast? So, you know, the concept of nature versus nurture, I, you know, I think it's a great question because I think my first year of uh, graduate school, I actually had a very intense conversation conversation about this with one of my classmates and um this classmate actually ended up introducing me to my wife so you know all is well that ends well but <laughs> I remember we were heated that day because she was trying to tell me you know um everybody can't be taught to be anything you know and I was like uh I hear what you're saying you know but in my opinion I, I vehemently disagree with that I believe that if you decide, you know, someone's going to be a doctor from day one and you give them all the resources and groom them to do that, they can do it. Right. I think <clears throat> the difference that comes into play is the person's desire to want to do that. Right. So you have to mix the instructions and the capability aspect of it, but you also have to make sure that they actually have interest because that's going to be what drives their capabilities. You know, the minute, the minute, MJ lost the passion for basketball. He stopped doing it, you know, and so greatness in any, you know, field that you choose to pursue has to come with like an, an innate drive to want to do it. So that's why I feel like, um, you know, my getting to the, the place that I'm at now um, did not happen because I was the smartest person at every phase. Clearly, I mean, the numbers show that wasn't the case. You know, what what really happened is was that, you know, there were a lot of times I kept betting on myself and didn't count myself out. And then when there were times where I was not, you know, there were mentors in place to pick up the slack, um, probably more often than not, you know, to help me overcome those challenges. So, yes, in summary, yeah, I believe anyone can be taught to do anything. And I believe that you have to have that innate desire and passion to want to do it. And if you feel like that's dwindling anyway, you know, you got to check, check that at the door before you go into your place of work and do whatever you do. You know, you got to, you got to make sure you're right within. That was dope, man. Thank you. Thank you. Um, another question I have for you, just seeing your journey, uh, I've seen you battle your way through, um, you know, us being in the same lab, you taking the time to teach me, but also, you know, sharing our experiences as we went. How did that, having that camaraderie uh, go from, you know, being at an HBCU to now going back to a med school program where there might not be a whole lot of young men or young women who look like you? Um, can you speak a little bit on that experience and how were some ways that you're working to create avenues for other people who look like you as they go into these different experiences? Um, how are you looking to enhance their experience or build camaraderie as well? I, I think um, camaraderie was everything. I mean, when I when I look back at my experience at Morehouse School of Medicine, um, I don't think about the the experiments I don't think about, you know, the supplies. I don't think about the lunch talks. I think about the postdoc room. I think about us, you know, sharing our challenges, sharing our successes, um, going through things uh, as a unit. You know, those are things you look forward to. Those are the things that even on your worst days might be the reason why you wake up and still go to school, you know, because you're like, uh, I'm at least be able to be around people that I know support me. Um, 
and can help me through this journey. So I think that's it's everything, actually. And then, as you know, um, out of tragedy while we were there came, you know, a, a great group of guys who would meet regularly um, to do just that. And, you know, I, I really love the setup that we had where we had the older folks, you know, and the faculty who would come and share their perspective. And then you had the people who was trying to make it you know, and then you had the people who were in these programs and and kind of sharing their experiences. So like mm-hmm. all those different levels of knowledge um, and us being able to help each other through that, it, it's key. It's pivotal, you know. Um, it's very similar to, you know, I'm a big NBA fan. So, you know, it's very okay. similar to the player empowerment movement, you know. Um, why do this on our own and go through the struggle on our own when we can team up? you know, and make sure that we all make it. Um, so, so going from Morehouse School of Medicine to a school with a lot more students who don't look like me, I, I knew it was going to be a challenge, but you know, wherever there's a challenge, there's an opportunity as well. And so I saw the opportunity to create an organization because I already had the framework um, from Morehouse School of Medicine um, to start an organization that would help unite um, underrepresented students, not only in, in the medical program, but across the school, all the graduate programs, the PA programs, nursing programs. I wanted to get everybody together in one room just to see how powerful that is for everybody. Um, and it unfortunately started during COVID. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that we were doing was virtual, but those conversations were still very meaningful. And we were able to, you know, break down the facade that a lot of people have to, you know, carry all day. And we were able to get to the root of who people were. And I think once you break down those barriers and make genuine relationships with people, you know, mentoring in a professional realm becomes much easier, you know? So uh, I've been really happy to be able to do that here. And I think also that has been kind of like a game changer in my experience. Wow, wow, man, thank you. Thank you for keeping that tradition. Um, and reaching out to people who look like you. Um, You know, I know you've been through a lot of life experiences while you've been on the pursuit of these degrees. Um, One being that you're a married man now. I remember Patrick meeting you uh, while you were starting your relationship and also meeting you while you're getting married and, you know, now having that transition. Um, Can you speak a little bit to your work-life balance like how do you how do you manage all of that and still be a mentor and still be you know a person who's going to the hospital and having these experiences and learning and yet still being a husband when you come home and then also creating a space to still be Patrick um, at the same time and a son as well and a brother um, as well too so how do you how do you feel like you manage all of that Um, because I feel like as PhD students uh, PhD holders scientists in general we're not always the best people uh with balancing that and i think you spoke to a a lot of times you mentored to me when it came to that as well um so how do you how do you prioritize those things uh number one you got to know yourself i think um and that knowing yourself means being able to decide what you find most important what you call priorities i think we all have some essence of what we think that is but Sometimes you got to write it down. Sometimes you got to call it out because that's going to guide your decision making from that point forward. Right. So I think getting married um, was the ultimate blessing. I think I I think that's the reason why I ended up in Atlanta was to meet my wife. Um, And I I will never regret that for that. Um, But what that also caused me to do is to make sure that all the decisions I was making, you know, henceforth um, fell in line with the goals we had for our family, um, including medical school, right? So I still remember my second or third year of the PhD program. I was walking in uh, Jimmy Carter Park with uh, my then girlfriend. And um, I asked her, I was like, you know, I'm really considering going to medical school. And I understand, you know, the implications of me going to school after a PhD and not making a check. Like, you know, I understand those, you know, implications how do you feel about it and um you know every woman's going to handle that question a little differently but i know she did not flint and she said you know if that's your dream then i'm here for you and first of all she doesn't she might not know it but that was definitely one of those key moments when i was you know you know adding up the tab of reasons why 
you know, I think I want to marry her. But um, that was a big one. Now you got to find someone who's going to support your dream. So if she was able to um, support that priority of mine, then I had to make sure anything I did, um, I made her and the family that we're trying to create and the legacy we're trying to leave, make that a priority, you know? So um, know yourself. For me, I knew that, you know, um, understanding how powerful love can be and how important the family unit can be and how important the village is in, in this process of science, you know, that's, that's, that's what we do it for. Right. And that's why when you work in biology and the, just the science of life in general, which to me is science and, and medicine, biological science and medicine, you know, it's all very spiritual. Everything that we do is very spiritual. And I think that even when you're working with cells to, to working with people, you're dealing with the same kind of systems that drive living things. Right. Nice. Um, and so when you understand that even I think Kofi and in his Insta story brought this up the other day, like if you look at cells, they don't like to live alone. Right. They like to live in clusters. They like to live. Well, that's the same. People are social beings, you know, so I, I keep those same concepts. Like if you don't have your village and you out here, you know, all right, you got all your publications and you got this title, you know, but you go home and, and there's nothing. Uh, I'm sorry, friend. You 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 got it backwards. Well, I don't want to say that for everybody. That would be backwards for me because that's that's not what my priorities are. Facts. Wow, that was dope, man. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Wait, wait wow. let me just cut in. I, I I actually do think you can say that for everybody because we're all humans, <laughs> and like even though we all are are different in some ways, there are things that tie us all to the same category of of homo sapiens you know and so to your point that's why i have brought that up in my in my story because those are cancer cells but those are human human cancer cells you know mm-hmm. so even even to our most fundamental beings or, or fundamental elements there are certain things that that we all have in common that we cannot change the the need for others being one of them and i and i'm in here but i just saw a uh, um interview the uh the other day um, there was there was some study that was done recently showing that the key to living the absolute maximum lifespan for a human is to have loving support. Like that's literally all that you need. It's not even food and water almost. It's literally just if you have a love a loving and supportive family structure or, or community structure. Uh, um, around you, that's literally all that you need to live your maximum lifespan. So even even science says that. <laughs> so man, you have such a unique vision um, of what you wanted to do. And I, you know, knowing you, hearing you talk about it and actively move towards it, that's, those are two different things as well. Um, having a plan and actually committing to the plan, not all of us are great at that. And that, I think that's the thing that separates success from failure as well. Um, but I wanted to ask you, how do you marry your PhD track with what you're doing as an MD or potential MD? Well, not potential, but almost an MD now. We're going to call it. So Dr. Carrier, um, how do you marry or marry those two things together? Um, I know, you know, your organization skills. I know you're a really good time manager as well. Um, but how did that translate when you started your MD track? How did some of those skills and the way that you thought as a PhD scientist did that did a lot of that transfer over or how was that experience altogether? You know, that's, that's interesting. Um, I would like to say, yes, like as soon as I hit the ground in medical school, everything came together perfectly. And I was like, yes, I got this PhD and it means, it means something now, but the reality is, um, you know, <clears throat> the style of thinking uh, that I had to develop, you know, it was a whole new, it was a whole new playing ball field, you know, or playing field or forget the phrase. Um, it was a whole new realm of thinking. Right. So I would meet my classmates and then be like, oh, you know, I heard you got this Ph.D. So that must mean you're about to knock out these exams and yada, yada, yada. But the reality is, you know, um, I'm, I'm learning a lot of new information, too. You know, so I think initially I didn't really see how they were going to come together. But over time you know, you start to get exposure to more fields of medicine, um, your knowledge base starts to grow. So I think now moving forward, you know, you know, a PhD teaches you how to ask the right questions and how to answer that question effectively. 
I think medicine is going to give me exposure to things to ask the, the right questions. Um, and so I think that's really where, you know, this is going to go moving forward. I want to make sure that I'm not doing research for the sake of doing research, but I want to make sure I'm asking questions that are most meaningful to me that are going to have the most impact, particularly from my experience and my interests on the patient experience. Um, and I think that that might be a mix of quantitative methods, you know, uh, but I also think there's a big opportunity to do that with qualitative research. Um, and I really unlocked the power of that in medical school and was working on a project um, where I got to hear the stories of prostate cancer patients, right? And some of the effects um, that treatment had on their lives, um, both at home and at work. Um, and that was so eye-opening for me, right? Because getting to hear a, a patient's story from the time that they're diagnosed to the time that they're deciding their treatment options with their family and the physician to actually going through that treatment and having some of those side effects. And then now dealing with the long-term ramifications of it and talking about it, which is something that a lot of men don't do, right? They, they go through something and then now it's in the past and move on to the next challenge. But uh, there were many interviews that I would end where men would be like, you know, thank you for doing this. You know, it helped me kind of understand some things about how I approach the situation and things I was going through that I didn't even acknowledge at the time. You know, so to me, there's power in qualitative data because it tells more than sometimes what one data point may be able to explain, right? Um, so I think that moving forward, I just want all of my research initiatives that fall within the realm of my practice to be very patient-centered, patient-focused, um, and to be able to uplift their perspective. Wow, that was deep. I like that, man. I like that. Uh, so do you think, is there any special research topics that you learned from your experience as a cancer researcher now going to have both pot, both sides of the pot, for lack of a better phrasing? Um, is there any particular parts of cancer research that you want to attack um, when you do, uh, when you are able to have your own practice or in your next steps? Um, as a physician, uh, physician, physician researcher, um, is there <laughs> anything specific that you want to necessarily pinpoint? So yes and no, right? I think that, so I'm going to the field of radiation oncology. Um, and for, for the listeners who may not be aware, uh, oncology treatment can be broken down into three main flavors, right? You got you can treat cancer and tumors with surgery. You can treat them with chemotherapy. Um, that falls, falls under the realm of like medical oncology. And then you can also treat them with lasers. Um, and that's where radiation oncology comes in. So that's the, that's the part of the team that I'm going to be on. And um, it's a very it's, it's a unique field. It's a complex field, but it's a field that, you know, I'm still at the beginning stages of learning about, right? So before you can figure out what problem you're going to address, you need to like understand the field as a whole and then find where your niche is going to be. So within the context of radiation oncology, I don't know yet. I, I don't want to act like I do, but whatever I do, you know, this goes back to our previous discussion. You know, if I'm guided by my priority of elevating the patient and their experience, you know, I think that's going to be the backbone of any research project and any question that I ask myself, right? Mm -hmm. um, particularly um, as it relates to um, access, you know, that certain patient populations may have to certain forms of cancer treatment uh, and, and how they're explained, um, their options at the point of diagnosis. You know, you would think every patient is going to get the same explanation and be given the same options, but based on, you know, perhaps the physician's assumptions of the capabilities of that patient or their ability to pay for their treatment, they might be given different options. You would hope it's not, that's not the case, but maybe it's happening. Maybe that's something that we need to address. Um, and I'd also want to be a part of efforts to maybe revamp the way we give medical education or graduate education um, to be more engaging for students. I think we're at a whole new like era of technology and consumption, and we need to recognize that in academia and, and adapt a little bit more because I think we're still kind of, um, you know, going using the same principles and and strategies we used to use to teach people back in like 
the 50s and 60s, literally, like a lot hasn't changed. And I think that there's a space now to really bring in new ideas to to all types of fields of medicine and research and think of new ways to teach people. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, so you did mention, you know, coming to Atlanta. Um, I never asked you this, but why did you choose Morehouse? And even when I know that you were speaking about uh, choosing Xavier um, for your next research experience after you finish your college degree. Um, but why Xavier? Why, why are this some of the places that you chose, even why Wake Forest? Um, just kind of like what was your decision path? Because I know a lot of students or people who are potentially choosing to do their PhD or they may want to do the same track, be uh, a PhD and an MD as well. What spoke to you about these places that you've had these experiences at to make you feel like, OK, yeah this was the right decision. And even if that was your overall thinking, because I know personally for myself, you say you want to go to this place, it matches up on paper. Uh, you know, the interview process is good. You get a good feel, but there's always that question mark in the back of your head. Is this the right place for me? And um, how did you, could you speak to that thinking process? And what were some of the decisions that led you to go um, to these places? Yeah. So the reality is, you know, I'd love to say that, you know, I did I did like, you know, in-depth analysis of all these places and, you know, I narrowed down all the decisions that I all the choices that I had. And, I, you know, no, none of that happened. What really happened is along the way, you know, I didn't choose these places. These places chose me. Um, so, for for example, when it came to Morehouse, um, I actually when I was applying for graduate school, um, I thought I wanted to stay in Louisiana. Uh, I was really enjoying New Orleans. I had made some connections with um, some faculty at Tulane. Um, uh, they were in cahoots with my research advisor at the time. So I, I thought that was like in the bag. Um, I applied to a lot, maybe like 10 graduate schools at that time, not including Morehouse, mind you. Um, and I was like, okay, I did decent on my GRE. I got some research experience. This should be nothing. Um, your boy kept getting no after no after no after no to to the point where maybe in I want to say maybe December or January no 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 in December I had not got any acceptances and I was like well there goes graduate school you know I don't know what's gonna happen with that but I happened to be going to a research conference in Puerto Rico in December wow. um, right. And, you know, I was just trying to get a free trip to Puerto Rico, you know, obviously do my research. But I was like, man, this is about to be you know, fire. But um, little did I know that trip was going to change my life because I met a recruiter from Morehouse School of Medicine who was like, hey, man, have you considered our research program? You know, our PhD program? I was like, no, I haven't. But thank you for putting me on. So, I, you know, I, I did my research on the program, I put in my application and lo and behold, I got the interview. And so when I came there. You know, everyone was just so supportive. Um, I could tell they had uh, took the time to get to know my application. And um, even when they saw some of the more, you know, unsavory things on my application, they still lifted me up. They were like, but you've done good work, though, you know, and they acknowledged that. So um, so they showed that they wanted me, you know, and that, that was helpful. That was important. Um, so it wasn't just that I didn't have any other options because that would that sounds that mischaracterization of how I came to the decision. Not only did I not have any other options, but Morehouse really showed me how I was going to thrive in their environment. So I felt comfortable with that. I wouldn't have just gone to Atlanta knowing I was going to be in a bad situation just to be in grad school because it wasn't that serious for me. So Facts. that was that. A very similar thing happened uh, with Wake Forest. You know, I was applying to all these schools. I wasn't in the same situation. So I was getting interviews and I was, you know, having some choices this time. But there was something unique about when I went to the interview for Wake Forest. Again, they I could tell that they had done a little bit more, uh, taken a little bit more time to get to know me and my application. Because when I walked in the door, they were like, oh, hey, Patrick, how you doing? You know, um, coming in from Atlanta, you know, how was, so they knew, I didn't have to like tell them who I was, you know, I didn't even have my name tag yet. So they knew who I was. Um, and so, and then the rest of the day was a really good interview. I, I enjoyed it. But you know, the funny thing at the end of that interview day, I got horribly sick, um, started throwing up everywhere. Um, I was, I was tremendously sick driving home from North Carolina. And I really took that as the sign that maybe this isn't the place for me. Oh, man. Um, but uh, yeah, it was crazy. I was dying. Like I had to stop on the side of the road and just chill for a few hours. 
on my way back from North Carolina. But when I really took a step back to to look at all the places I went to, I didn't get that same experience um, at any other place than I got at Wake Forest. And I knew that if I went anywhere else, I'd be thinking like, but you remember how they treated you at Wake Forest and you had everything you needed there. Um, so again, this place chose me and I'm really glad that I, I took that leap of faith because um, I feel like I've learned a lot. Um, North Carolina has been great. It's been a great chance, you know, as um, early on in our marriage for me and my wife to be in a new place and, you know, learn what it takes to kind of build your network together. Um, so that's, that's, it's all been very, very positive. That's awesome, man. Um, you just spoke about building a network, especially going into a new place. Um, can you maybe talk about that aspect of networking? How was networking for you in undergrad versus your PhD level versus now? So in undergrad, I think that um, I was a, I was too much in my head when it came to networking. Uh, so I'm naturally an introvert. And when it comes to being in social situations, um, they can they can give me a lot of anxiety, actually. Um, so I would go to these events and I really wasn't doing much to step outside of my comfort zone. Um, and, you know, not to say I didn't make any connections, but a lot of the connections I made um, were through maybe my scholarship program and, and preordained meetings. So thank goodness for that, because I don't know if I really stepped outside of myself to, to do anything to expand my network. I think after working for three years, um, I realized, you know, when you get into a working environment, it can be much harder to make friends, right? Um, because when you're in a school environment, it's like a small bubble, it's like a mini nation. And, you know, it's, it's much easier to, to meet people in that context than when you're just going into a nine to five, coming home, you know, you got you to be more proactive. Um, so that kind of, because I got a little bit lonely, let's just let's just keep it real. I decided to, to step outside of my comfort zone and, and go places to meet people. And I think that helped. And so before I came to Morehouse, you know, I knew I was going back to school, but I didn't I didn't approach it like that. I felt like me starting my Ph.D. was starting my career and I approached it like that, you know. So from the time I came, you know, I was very serious. Everyone was saying, like, don't worry about your grades. I was like, no, I'm going to worry about my grades because my grades are my job. Yeah. You know, so that's the only indicator of my job performance. You know, not to say that, you know, I had to be perfect or anything. But my point was I, I took it seriously, regardless of what people told me, you know, and I felt like I came in with a very distinct plan of who I need to meet, what programs I want to apply for. And how I want to maximize this experience. So again, the theme of, of graduate school um, was stepping outside of my comfort zone, going to these meet and greet events, um, and just walking up to people and learning how to start a conversation. You know, because once you get outside your own head and just do it, you're going to realize they're just as awkward as you. And they're just trying to like fumble and bumble through these icebreakers just like you. Um, but if you ask some basic questions over and over again, you'll realize you'll get better at it, right? So I felt like um, I had broke that barrier um, in graduate school. And when I came to medical school, I mean, a big part of what we do is walking into random patients' rooms and just starting up a new conversation and getting to know people. So I think that further just got me comfortable with being random, you know? And so... Um, Another thing I'll touch on right before I end my answer is like tap into other people's networks. You know, you don't have to build everything from scratch. So if you have a mentor or a friend who knows a colleague who might be able to put you on, like that's probably the easiest way to make connections through word of mouth because someone can at least vouch for you. You know, so I think that's been important in this process as well. If I may cut in for a second, um, I actually want to uh, backtrack to something that you mentioned earlier about uh, betting on yourself. Um, I, I was just curious whether you can just go into some more detail. If you have an um, a example or anything similar where betting on yourself either worked, either worked out for you or, or if it didn't work out for you. Because uh, we've gotten a lot of you know, positive feedback about sharing our uh, personal experiences in uh, STEM. So. So I think that um, that your question takes me back to uh, my sophomore year of college. I think that was 
probably a, a low point in my academic career. Um, so I came into college ambitious and, you know, really trying to hit the ground running, but very quickly got off the rails, started um, being distracted by pledging and women and all that type of thing, you, you know, all the ingredients. Um, and I felt like <clears throat> I had a low point the sophomore year, uh, my second semester, um, just did horribly, like took too many classes, just thought it was going to work out and absolutely did not. Right. And so I remember having dinner with my parents soon thereafter. And I'm thinking like, they're going to rip me to shreds. Like, what are you doing up there? Like you're wasting a good opportunity. Um, and honestly, they did more along the lines of just reminding me of, of who I am, you know, and, and telling me like everything that you're getting caught up in, you think it's important, but four or five years down the line, you know, it's not going to be as important as you think. Um, so I need you to refocus, like redirect your energy. Um, particularly if you're trying to accomplish the goals that you're trying to, you know, if you're trying to get an MD and a PhD, you, you might want to straighten up a little bit. Right. So I think at that point, knowing that I had kind of messed up my statistics, I think that was the, the number one moment that I had to decide whether I was going to bet on myself to continue down that path. Right. Um, and thank goodness I had, again, when I wasn't uh, in the state of mind to bet on myself, I had someone who reminded me what I still have to bet on. And that was my parents. Um, so that, that was the first key moment. I think the second key moment was um, when I was working at Xavier, I think I got jaded. You know, I was really tired of the research that I was working on and I, I just wasn't feeling it. And I was like, okay, I, I know my previous self said, hey, we're going to continue down this path, but let's reevaluate. Maybe it's not for me. Right. And I think I ended up thinking of some business ideas and I made a business plan and I started studying for the GMAT. Um, once again, came to my dad with my business plan, had everything ready to go. And he had to remind me very quickly, you know, you don't have any money to start this business. Now I'm not trying to, you know, discourage you, but you're not going to go very far with this because you don't have any capital. Um, so um, I think it was at that moment that I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. But again, someone stepped in. Um, my research advisor at the time ended up leaving science, which probably added to my thoughts of trying to leave science because she was like, I can't do this anymore. Um, but she ended up um, re recommending me to one of her colleagues um, who, once again, was a game changer. She was the one who really um, took time to teach me different things and uh, we worked on grants together, you know, um, designed experiments together. And I just felt like she gave me the latitude and the confidence um, to do things in science and have a passion for it again, um, which I had lost. You know, so I think at that point I was like, you can keep doing this. You know, you just have to remember why you're here. Um, so that that was key. And then obviously with everything that I went through in the Ph.D., um, what I knew was that. I was clearly learning a lot from the challenges that I was having with, you know, my advisor or the program or, you know, things in life. Um, but, you know, I would still, I, I still had a vision of what I wanted to do 10, 20 years down the line. Um, so at that point, I think, um, even though a lot of people were actually advising against going to medical school, I think that was the moment where, um, I bet on myself beyond other people's expectations and knew that time goes by quicker than you think when I, when I tell you, and I, I didn't realize that until I finished my PhD, I was like, man, that was five years, but like, was it? Because I really felt like it went by in a blur. So when, when I thought of the concept of doing another four years, I just reminded myself four years is going to go by quickly. Don't even worry about it. Um, and then on the other side of that, you know, you're going to get to live out your vision. So you know, persistence, man. Yeah, man. Persistence is so key, man. And following your passion. Uh, thank you for sharing um, just kind of your perspective of some of the things you were, you know, contemplating, you know, people on the outside telling you, you know, med school, like another four years, five years, then, you know, residency or something like that. So, uh, you know, thank you for living out your dream and, and, and seeing that vision and following that. Um, just to kind of give uh, our audience a little bit more 
you know, variety and to, to understand uh, you as a, as a whole person. I know that you're big into basketball and photography and other things. So could you tell us about some things that you kind of use outside of science to help you keep uh, sane and also balanced? Well, I think uh, the theme um, for me since I've been in high school really has been um, just finding different creative outlets. That's always been something that I have found useful. So um, I remember at that summer program I was telling you about our first year. Um, yeah, we, we were learning like the basis of grammar and uh, and critical thinking. And we did all that. But we when we got back to the dorm, because, you know, they had to stay on campus and they gave us a stipend. I mean, it was we had the worst. Right. We were in there, you know, with the, the mic and the sock you know, trying to create these rap songs or whatever. And I remember we came up with the rap song that at the uh, the closing program, we actually like performed our song all together. Man, that was like a high moment in life, you know. Um, so I, anything that allows me to express myself beyond, um, you know, the technical parts of science um, can be very useful. Um, that's been in the form of music. Um, that's been in the form of photography, which... It's just amazing to me because you're able to like capture beauty in time um, and really like perseverate on it as you're editing the photos and everything. You're like, man, God's creations are really that beautiful. Um, um, and yeah, and then basketball. So we can now finally get to the truth. Um, basketball, that that's always a release, right? Because you're able to get your cardio in, you're able to talk your stuff. And clearly you had a guest on here last time talking stuff and he wasn't on the court just trying to tell Fibs talking about he was beating our team. But no, nah, that, that's cool. I'll let him have that. He knows what happened on the, <laughs> what happened on the court. I ain't got to say anything. I'm not going to say nothing on that. So you, uh, you basketball is that officially? Uh... <laughs> Uh, you know, Ian, no, that's why you're laughing. Who haven't heard, you Ian, know. no, pew, that's, pew, pew, pew. <laughs> Ian, no, that's why he's laughing. You know, I, I you know, I, I feel like I'm at a right? press conference right now. You, this is the <laughs> after the game press conference. We came, we did what we were supposed to. Do. <laughs> <laughs> respect, respect. We'll keep it on the court, then we'll uh, keep it on the court. <laughs> you know, I ain't gonna say nothing about that, but you know, um, so basketball's always been great, I think. Um, that was like my first true love, man. There's something about team sports, right? Where um, leaders identify themselves, role players identify themselves, but it all like comes together beautifully when it, when it is working um, and teaches you a lot about how to work it, work with others. You know, I think that's where I really got that foundation. I think, um, you know, pledging in college also gave me that foundation of how to accomplish goals with the team. Um and so that's why that's why I just I love the stories in basketball so much, you know, um, the persistence that people needed to get to where they are in sports. And it's very similar. I feel like we're mental athletes, you know, we're intellectual athletes in a way in, in the way we have to uh, constantly practice our craft to get better, you know. Um, so that that that's a concept I don't think people understand about science and medicine. I think they hear you going to school for X amount of years and they have a picture in their mind of what school is. And they're like, no, I don't want to do that for, you know, five, six years or however long it's going to take. But graduate school, the PhD, that wasn't, that wasn't like undergrad. That that's not school. That's a job where you're getting probably paid way too little for, you know, but you, you are working you're working, right? You know, and, and what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. That's a job to me, right? Um, or that's a career. <laughs> exactly. So that, that's why I love sports. I just feel like there's so many parallels and, you know, at least that's how I like to psych myself up about it. I also just started kickboxing as of late and that's been a huge release, you know, um, just gets me moving in different ways. Um, and when I was trying to study for that board exam, definitely helped me release some energy <laughs> you <go>. know <laughs> so that's been cool but yeah a lot of things man y'all know me man just like very simple when it comes to to what I do just like to enjoy relationships and friendships and enjoy time with my wife and everything else is gravy that's awesome man uh thank you for sharing uh you know your time with us and so we could get to learn a little bit about you and also seeing what a a young black physician scientist looks like, man, just do it with 
with grace and style. So, you know, we appreciate you for just being you. Uh, was, is there anything that you kind of want to leave the audience with or some kind of, you know, something to keep in mind as they go through their journey to try to get to where they are? Because, you know, as you were talking, you were, you saw a physician scientist and that was something in your mind that kind of helped you see your goals better. So what kind of advice would you give your younger self or people coming up in the game? I think the advice that I would give them is be specific, be intentional, um, but be be adaptable. Um, would I have written my story the way it has played out 10, 20 years ago? No, without a doubt, not even close, right? But that's the beauty of a plan that's preordained, right? You kind of live through it and you're like, oh, so that was supposed to be the plan. It all comes together. It all starts to make sense, right? So while early on I was specific with with my goals of wanting an MD and a PhD, while I was intentional in, in the route that I took to get there with going to a research program for undergrad and, you know, applying to, to school, you know, and I actually had, so if you don't have this, I would consider making this before you start any new endeavor, or if you're in a new endeavor, just tomorrow, try this make an individual development plan. So in this individual development plan, it's gonna have three month goals, one year goals, three to five year goals, 10 year goals, right? So that's how you get specific, you know? You make, the, you make that plan, you write it out, and then you have to be intentional about seeking those opportunities. But what's gonna happen is those opportunities are probably going to lead you to other elements, other factors that may steer you. And that's, that's where the adaptability comes in. Um, and I feel like um, I've been adaptable in my journey. Uh, I've enjoyed, enjoyed the process. Um, I used to be so focused on outcomes, but I think now I enjoy the process so much more. Like that's all we have. We don't, we don't get to experience the future currently. And the past is really only memories. Like, all we have is being able to wake up and, you know, focus on what's in front of us. And, you know, you have to you have to enjoy that. There's so much joy in that. And once you find peace and contentment in that, you know, a lot of the stress and anxiety we have about the future seems to kind of like fade away. Thanks for listening to For the Culture podcast with your hosts, Ian, Kofi and Lawrence. If you're new here, don't forget to click that subscribe button and follow us on social media. Help us grow by liking and sharing this episode with your family and friends. Hey, that's all for this episode. See you next time.